We're going to start a reading in verse 57 of Matthew 26. And I'm going to skip uh, between verses here. There's a lot of story here. And, and I would hope this week that as you spend time reflecting on, on the sacrifice that Jesus went to for your sins, that you spent some time reflecting. This is a great passage of Scripture to read in its entirety, to meditate on, to think about, and to have a heart of gratitude and just acknowledging the love that God has for you and accepting that love and, and, and basking in that. But tonight I want to look at a specific thought, and so bear with me as we set up the thought, and then we'll hopefully at the very end of the sermon drive it home in application for us. A heavy text, um, but I think there's a point here that we could help be helped from tonight. So verse 57, Jesus has been, been arrested. He was in the garden with his disciples. He's been taken into custody now by the Jews. He's not yet been handed over to the Romans. He is in the, he's with, by the Jews. And the Bible says in verse 57, they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. All right. Elizabeth and I, when we were in Israel just in December of this last year, and some of you are going on this trip this next year, we were able to go to Caiaphas' house. And some of the stairs that lead up to Caiaphas' house are still there. And so they had him here in this courtyard, and then they would have taken him below Caiaphas' house, and there still preserved is the place where they would have beat Jesus. And so there was, there was two places where they would have done this, and there was one where they would have tied him up and stretched him like this, and then there was a tavern where in a moment we'll read these other verses where they would have beat him, mocked him, and spit on him. And it's this room, and our group of 50 people, we fit into this room, but we were shoulder to shoulder. And it's, it's underground, it's dark, it's made completely out of stone. And it was in this room where some stairs lead down into it, and we sang some hymns there. It was, it was incredible. But this is where this took place. And so some of you that have been there might, might envision as we read this. And so, th- again, this is not the Romans just yet. So 67, it was at Caiaphas' house. Then did they spit in his face, and they buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Okay, chapter 27, verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So they've had him all night. This beating's been going on for a long time now. And they take counsel how they could kill him. When they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So now he's in Romans' hands. All right, I want to continue our reading, but I want us to look at verse 27. So skip down, you may have to turn a page. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus, and um, these, wouldn't have been, these would have been Roman soldiers, but they probably weren't actually from Rome. Many say they were probably from Syria. They took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him. And put on him a scarlet robe. When they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Verse 39. And they that, I'm sorry, you know what, I want to continue reading verse 32, just to 35. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. When he had tasted thereof, he would not drink, and they crucified him. 
Now verse 39. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyed the temple and the building, buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, all that's also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani. And that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calls for Elias. Straightway one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with vinegar, and put, a, put it on a reed and gave him a drink. And the rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. I want you to pay careful attention to a few descriptive words in this text that really set the scene beyond the pain, beyond the blood, um, beyond the torment. It, it was the mockery that was present. Verse 67 to 26, they spit in his face. After binding him, they stripped him naked. It says in verse 29 that they mocked him. Verse 31 again, they mocked him. Verse 39, they reviled him. Verse 41, mocking him. That was the scene. That's how he was treated. Let's pray tonight. Father, thank you for your word, for this story preserved from us from, from Matthew's perspective. Lord, there's no way for us to fully comprehend uh, your love for us and the sacrifice here. And uh, Lord, as we reflect this week on what you did for us, Lord, the mocking that you endured, Lord, the pain, and you didn't have to. Lord, we're grateful. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to process in some small measure once again as we recount your, your, your death and this suffering, that we'd be better people and helped, Lord, with the example you said in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, author Philip Yancey, who was a journalist, he recounts this story. And he says in a memoir of the years before, right before World War II, Pierre Van Passen tells of an act of humiliation by Nazi stormtroopers. They had seized an elderly Jewish rabbi and dragged him to headquarters. In the far end of the same room, two colleagues were beating another Jew to death. But the captors of the rabbi decided to have some fun with him. And so they stripped him naked. And then they commanded him to preach the sermon he had prepared for the upcoming Sabbath in the synagogue, of which he was a part. The rabbi asked if he could wear his yarmulke, and the Nazis grinning agreed. It added to this joke as his naked man stood before them. The trembling rabbi proceeded to deliver in a raspy voice his sermon on what it means to walk humbly before God, all the while being poked and prodded by the hooting Nazis, and all the while hearing the last cries of his neighbor being beat to death at the other end of the room. If you care for people, it's hard to see them 
humiliated in any context, but especially in this kind of context. And when you read about the imprisonment, the torture, the execution of Christ, it's hard not to think about a naked rabbi standing humiliated in a police station and capture some idea of what that must have been like. It is absolutely impossible to fathom the indignity and the shame that the Lord Jesus Christ endured on earth, but especially this evening and morning. Stripped naked and flogged, spat upon, struck in the face, garlanded with thorns. Jewish leaders as well as Romans intended the mockery to parody the crime for which he had been condemned. Messiah, huh? Well, that's great. Let's hear a prophecy. Bam! Who hit you, huh? Funk. Come on, tell us out. Spit it out, Mr. Prophet. For Messiah, you don't know much, do you? You said you're a king? <laughs> Captain, get a load of this. We have us a proper king here, don't we? Well, then let's all kneel before his honor. What's this? A king with no crown. That will never do. Well, here, Mr. King, we'll fix you a crown. We will. Crunch. Oh, that's a little crooked. Let me fix that. Hold still. My, look how immodest we are. Well, how about a robe then? Something to cover that bloody mess on your back. What happened? Did your majesty have a little tumble? This was done to Jesus Christ. The Son of God. It went on like this for hours on end. From the priest's courtyard and dungeon to Pilate's and Herod's guards to the catcalls and the jeers from spectators as he stumbled up the long road to Calvary. And then hanging on the cross. So much blood and mess that he wasn't even recognizable as a man. The jaunts and jeers continued. You call yourself a Messiah? Well, then why don't you come down from the cross? How are you going to save us if you can't even save yourself? Ha ha. Throughout history, I think many of us would marvel and even question, if we were honest, the self-restraint of God. He has allowed the Genghis Khans, the Hitlers, the Stalins, and even modern-day tyrants, even relationally, to have their way. But nothing, nothing compares to the self-restraint God must have had to show on that dark Friday in Jerusalem. Every lash of the whip, every fibrous crunch of fist against flesh, every mocking word, and with all of that, God restrained Himself. Legions of angels were watching the scene as well. And they had power, but they didn't have the permission to intervene and do anything in that moment. As they watched their Maker and God, abused by the hordes of hell and the very men He created to love. One word, just one word, one knowledge, acknowledgement, one nod of the head from Jesus, and the ordeal would have been over. But it is not what happened. Instead, Jesus willingly gave up His life. And God allowed him to die on the cross. Roman playwright, historian, 
ancient influencer, if you will, Cicero, he wrote, the idea of the cross should never come near the bodies of Roman citizens. In fact, he said it should never even pass through their thoughts, eyes, or ears. They don't even need to think about it. Like, it's so undignified, it's so cruel, it's so barbaric that Romans need never fear it. For the Romans, crucifixion was the cruelest form of capital punishment. It was reserved for murderers, for slave revolts, and heinous crimes in colonies. Roman citizens for heinous crimes would have been beheaded, not crucified. And Jews shared in their revulsion of it. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says that he that is hanged is a curse on a tree, is a curse of God. Galatians 3, 13, Paul instructs us that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The Jews preferred stoning to carry out their executions. Crucifixion was awful. And Jesus experienced as he hung on the cross, and what he went through was especially awful. And it deserves its own attention and own sermon. But that's not tonight. As gruesome and horrific as the crucifixion was, it's likely that Jesus had other things on his mind beside the pain. In fact, his only comment that he ever made about the pain or his physical condition was when he uttered the words, I thirst. It is hard to imagine that the one who made gallons of wine for a wedding party and who spoke of living water that would quench thirst forever was dying with a swollen tongue. And the most pain he felt in the moment was thirst. And as always, as he lay dying on the cross, Jesus was thinking about others. He forgave the men who condemned him, mocked him, jeered him, crucified him, in that moment, he arranged care for his mother. He welcomed a thief, even in his pain, into paradise. There are different snatches of things that Jesus said at Calvary. But the text in Matthew tonight that we just read records this saying. He said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Whenever Jesus prayed in the Gospels and you turn back to them, He always referred to God as either Abba or as Father. It gives us this insight into His relationship with God. It would be like my children calling me Dad. This is an affection. There's a unique relationship there. When Jesus spoke about His Heavenly Father, He didn't refer to Him as God. It was a term of endearment. It gives us understanding. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul said, We've been adopted by God into His family through Jesus Christ. And he even says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption. You've been adopted. You're a child of God. And he says, Whereby we cry in our distress, Abba, Father, because we're two, His children. But this time, Jesus referred to his father in the distant word of God. Of course, he was quoting Psalms chapter 22, verse 1, but he was also expressing a strange sense of estrangement. An inconceivable split had opened up in the Godhead, and the son felt abandoned by the father. Perhaps one of your children, or you've seen a child in distress, who cries out for a parent, separated from them. And it's utter terror in the heart of that child. And yet that doesn't even begin to compare. The estrangement, 
the aloneness, the separation that took place in this moment. We are not told what God the Father cried out in that moment. We can only imagine. Galatians 3, Paul said that, he be, that Jesus became a curse for us. 1 Corinthians 5, he said that God made him to be sin for us. One author said the sense of abandonment likely cut both ways. Not just Jesus, but God the Father too. I want to stress this point tonight. Jesus did not have to go through what he went through. I was driving in the car, and this formed the idea for this sermon in some, some degree. I was in the car about a week ago with one of my children. We're driving down the road, and we saw a church sign, and it was a little bit of a cliche saying, and I don't remember exactly what it said, but it basically said it wasn't the two nails that held up Jesus on the cross, it was his love. So my child and I started, you know, we started discussing that. I said, that's kind of, you know, it's a little cheesy, but it's really true. Like, it was his love that held him on the cross. It wasn't those nails. He could have come down. And, 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 and so my daughter says, well, well Dad, um, wh- why did God stay there? Like, why didn't he just make us love him? Why did he have to die on the cross? Why couldn't he have just made us love him? So we had to have this conversation about love. Well, what's love? It's volitional. It's chosen. That's why he did it. Because he chose, and he wants us to choose. He's the son of God. But he's also God. He has that kind of power. He was 100% man and 100% God. He was in control. He's in control. He's always be in control. So why did he go through it? Because he loves you. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners and undeserving, God said, I want to prove it to you that I want you to know how much I love you. And I want you to embrace it. I want you to understand it. I'm going to prove it to you and I'm going to go to extreme lengths to prove it to you. And so God commanded and he proved his love towards you tonight. And that while you were yet a sinner, that Jesus Christ went through that for you. He proved it because he loves you. In order for you to never be forsaken by God, he had to be. In order for you to not feel the estrangement from the Heavenly Father, he had to make a way. And so that's what he did. And so he experienced what we do not have to experience. And for our purposes tonight, I want to highlight two aspects of his crucifixion. Two things that he was actively doing. There are so many angles to this text. But all the way up to his death, he did these things to prove his love for you. And the first was simply this. He relinquished his power. He relinquished his power. To look at Jesus, one would not see a powerful being. Philippians chapter 2 gives us this insight. He made himself of no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant. People underestimated him his entire life. There wasn't the stature of a warrior. There weren't the symbols of a king. There were no trappings of a famous person. There was no educational achievements to be known of. He didn't have the following of a politician. But this servant, who made himself of no reputation, was the most powerful man ever born on planet Earth. He was powerful in substance. To say that Jesus is rich almost feels foolish to say, because he defines rich. He made rich. 
Psalms 50 verse 1 says, The world is mine and the fullness thereof. He was powerful in might. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was taken into custody, his disciples tried to defend him, and he said, there's no need to do that. You don't need to defend me. I don't need defending. He says, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? The old song says he could have sent 10,000 angels, which is mathematically off point. Depending on your point of reference, defining a legion can be difficult. But the math that I did in the history books that I read said that would be anywhere between 60,000 and 288,000 angels. Now, that, not that that even matters. Stories in the Bible, when you read in 2 Kings 19 about Hezekiah, Jerusalem, and the siege that was taking place there, one angel came and in one evening killed 185,000 men. That was just one angel. And so, at his disposal are these fierce warriors. Jesus was just powerful in every way possible and impossible for us to even define. He took all of that power. He took that equalness with God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, Philippians says. He took all of that might and all of that power and he relinquished it. He voluntarily ceased to keep or claim his power. He gave it up. The second thing he did was he absorbed all sin. This is why God forsook him, because of the sin that he took upon himself. First Peter chapter 2, Peter instructs us, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. He became the substitute for you. It was you that deserved it. It was you that deserved the mocking. It was you that deserved the cruelty. It was you that deserved to be beaten. It's you that deserves hell. And Jesus took that and said, no, I'll take your place. I'll substitute for you. And in the process, he literally absorbed your sin. Absorb means to take in or to soak up. He absorbed your guilt. He took in your judgment. He took upon himself your condemnation. All of your sin... He absorbs. That's what love does. Love absorbs. If you think tonight about a car, so many of them today are designed so that in an accident they crumple to protect you. The car absorbs the impact. It absorbs the shock. It absorbs the punishment so that you can stay safe. And in a far greater way, Jesus absorbed your sin for you at great cost to himself. And he didn't have to do it. He did it to prove to you, to help you understand that he loves you. He values you. He wants you. Okay, now I want to make my point tonight. That's what love does. Love relinquishes and love absorbs. It relinquishes position. That's what the Lord did. It relinquishes the insatiable need to be right. Was the Lord right? Well, yeah. You didn't have to prove it to anybody. He just was. Love relinquishes the need. I have to be forgiven. You, have to, you owe me an apology. 
It relinquishes, relinquishes the need to be liked or popular. It relinquishes the need to always be acknowledged. Love gives up. It lays down. It yields. It says there are more things important in life. And that's what the Lord did. He took his position. He took his power. He, he took his right to get even. He said, I don't have to get even. I'm not going to in this moment. Look, judgment's coming. And I don't want to press the theology of this too far. I want us to understand this moment. The Lord laid it down. He laid it down for you because that's what love does. It, and then the second thing is that love absorbs. Love doesn't always have to get even. Love, Paul instructs us, overlooks wrongs. It forgives before being asked. It overlooks harmful intent. I read this quote this week. And it's, you have to think about it as I read it. This is an old Christian writing hundreds of years ago. And it's this idea that he frames as the methodology of love. So he says this, and please listen carefully. There are dozens of ways to deal with evil and several ways to conquer it. All of them are facets of the truth that the only ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered within a willing, living human being. When it is absorbed, there like blood in a sponge or a spear into one's heart, it loses its power and it goes no further. The healing of evil scientifically or otherwise, can be accomplished, now listen, only by the love of individuals. This isn't what the disciples expected or wanted from Jesus. It's why so many abandoned Him. They wanted a fight. They wanted weapons. They wanted, they wanted power. But that's not what Jesus did, because that's not how evil is conquered. He goes on to say, a willing sacrifice is required. I do not know how this occurs, but I know that it does. And whenever this happens, there is a slight shift in the balance of power in the world. When evil is absorbed. The balance of power shifted more than slightly that Friday because of who it was that relinquished his power and absorbed evil. God chose the way of weakness. He relinquished power and he absorbed evil for the sake of love. But Jesus isn't the only one who can relinquish power and absorb evil. The old Christian wrote, the only ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered within a willing, living human being. So I want to ask you this question tonight. What are you willing to relinquish? And what are you willing to absorb for the sake of love? What will you give up in your marriage? What will you give up in your family? What will you give up in this church family? And secondly, what will you get over? Because that's what Jesus did. He gave up and he got over. He's sitting there forgiving the very men who in that moment are mocking him, reviling him, spitting in his face. 
buffeting him, taking his life. And he says, I, I get over, I'm over it. I'm already over it. And I willingly do it. And I do it again. That's what love does. What will you give up? And what will you give over to show the love of Christ? I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2. Paul so eloquently summarizes so much of what Christ did for us. Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you. This is how you're supposed to think. This is how you're supposed to interact with one another. These are the kind of thoughts that are supposed to go through your mind. You value Christ dying for your sin. You appreciate what He did for you. You value the blood. Sing about it tonight, and you should. Okay? Then let this mind be in you, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus. Because this is the mindset He took to the cross. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Look, our hearts and our worlds are fraught with problems and difficulties. They just are. All of us have problems and difficulties that we face. Amidst your problems, amidst your difficulty, and amongst your sin, I want you to know tonight, Jesus Christ died for that because He loves you. He went through a lot to prove it. The Maker of all things accepts you. He loves you desperately. He was willing to be forsaken by God the Father. He was willing to be that child left alone but so much more. He was willing to say, no longer Abba, a father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was willing to do all that to prove his love to you so that you wouldn't be forsaken by God. The entire story of the Bible from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 tells the story of a reckless God who's going to go to great lengths because of his desire to get his family back. The last scene in the Bible it's a scene of jubilation. It's a family get-together. It's God rejoicing. It's Abba Father, our Abba Father, saying, I've got my family home forever. But that process involves a lot of pain and disappointment for both God and us. But Jesus, He embodies the promise of a God who will go to any lengths to win you back and to keep us from being forsaken so that we can cry, Abba, Father. So here's the question tonight. What's the greatest thing you can do to say thank you? Don't forsake those in your life. Hebrews 10 tells us not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. How about this? Don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together and don't forsake those in the assembly. Don't let little petty offenses and hurts and things that happen here drive a wedge in this church family. Don't let neglect in, from your spouse or some harm or something they've done drive a wedge in your marriage relationship. 
If God loves you this much, and He says to you, let this mind be in you, this is, this is the kind of heartbeat I want you to have. This is the kind of mindset I want you to have. Look, I gave it all up. I relinquished it all. I, I, I put it all out there. My position, my power, everything, I lay it down. He said, I relinquish my power, and I'm willing to absorb all evil. I'm willing to take it upon myself. I'm willing to take it in for the sake of love. So I want you to have that same mindset. You don't have to go the lengths that Jesus went through. But there's, some, there's an attitude here. There's a mind that he wants us to have. See, the account of Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew isn't just a story with details about Jesus' death, and it is. It's an accounting of the extent to which we can and should go to love other people. And so if we're going to love like Jesus, there's some things we're going to have to lay down. There's some things we're going to have to get over and give up. There's some things we're going to have to absorb. Just take it on the chin sometimes. And when we do that, when we get to a point we can absorb evil, that's when it's defeated. When we do that, we conquer evil in our hearts. And we conquer evil in our world by smothering it with love. It's the only way. And it's the example he said for us.